Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Here with John and Emily, as always, uh, great to be here once again. And it was Emily's birthday, and she celebrated hard by moving house. I did indeed, and it was your birthday, which means we're both the star sign of a Taurus. And what did you do, John? Well, I attempted to run a lot of kilometres and and fell short. Anyway, but I had pancakes for dinner, so that was awesome. That's all that matters. <laughs> so today is a Q and A. We love a good Q and A, and the Facebook group has delivered plenty of questions. I just thought I'd put a post up. People have come to the party with all their questions, so plenty to unpack in today's episode. Let's get into it. So before we get into the Q&A, Emily, we've got a couple of reviews that we'd like to share with our listeners. Most definitely. We love when people review the podcast because it's hard to know who's actually listening sometimes. It's just it's just the two of us. So there's some Absolutely. great reviews that have come through. I love the name of the person who wrote this review, Pickle Pop Pin. What a name. <laughs> <laughs> love listening. Love the content about regional investments. This episode helped me with some research for form, firming up questions about essential housing and our rural and regional councillor podcast. Thank you, Pickle Pop Pin. Well done. That's great. It is a good name, isn't it? <laughs> so this one gives you a nice plug, Emily. So that's good. Really helpful for first home buyer. Thank you, Emily and John. I started listening to the podcast last year when I had zero knowledge of property and a dream of buying my first home. Fast forward a year later and some financial luck, we managed to buy our first home off market by putting in an offer to the owners of our rental. Our rental was our dream home. I learned all I needed to know from the podcast, uh, Emily's Home Buying Guide. The content is so informative and easy to follow. Highly recommend to any first home buyers. Thank you to uh, Renewge, I think it's pronounced. Love it. That's so good that they were able to buy the property they were renting. And that's been actually a common question that's popped up, which we have covered in another episode. But yeah, awesome. I love hearing that people are actually buying houses. Yes, absolutely. So uh, thank you for those reviews. If you feel as though we deserve a five, great, go in and review. Uh, If you think we're a one, then that's fine as well. Uh, But yeah, try and give us a five if you can. (laughs) A not so good news story. Oh, Uh, Out of WA, some news during the week. Email communications between a home buyer and settlement agent were hacked last month, resulting in a hefty loss for the property purchaser. So... A woman, uh, a woman lost approximately seven hundred and thirty-two thousand due to the payment direction scam. Right, so a third party has intervened and hacked the email of the agent and sent the the this lady uh, new trust details, and that uh, lady 
forwarded her deposit or a payment onto these new trust details, which were obviously a scam uh, and has essentially lost that money. Now, they're in the midst of obviously trying to recoup that, but as we know, online, it's a big, wide, ugly world out there. So, yeah, it uh, it may be some time, if not ever, that she does get that money back. So scary stuff out there. So that made me think, Emily, what are the things that we need to be thinking of when we're doing that online for such a, a, a large purchase? Well, that's the biggest thing, right? So we have always said whenever you're putting money into a trust account or you are transferring a large sum, you never rely on the email that comes through. So a lot yes. of agents and this, particularly if you're about to buy a property, and you're going to put a deposit in an agent's trust account or anywhere, um, there's one of two ways. One is you call up the agent or the agent's office and verbally cross-check the figures um, that you're putting across and the BSB and account number. The other thing that a lot of agents do do is they um, actually have a hard copy, like a, a printed copy of the trust account details and they take a photo of that hard copy and send it in a text message. That's pretty bulletproof. Yeah, but you is. really need to be sure that where you're putting the money uh, is where it should be going because that's a, that's a totally. massive loss. Absolutely. And, and I'm just reading on WA's consumer protection as a result of this and others have, have given some tips and I'll just quickly read them out because I think this is extremely important, not just for, for buying property but anything online, isn't it? So number one, verify email addresses. Number two, be mindful of generic service providers. Number three, confirm authenticity of requests. Uh, number four, do not use contact details in an email. Uh, and this one I like, don't reply, hit forward instead. So that keeps the scammer out of the out of oh. the picture when we forward on and we actually choose what email we're sending it to. Uh, personally, obviously, verify account details what is what you're referring to and use a multi-factor authentication. So, yeah, uh, we, we just normally – it's easy to just go about your business and just presume that what we're doing is uh, correct and, and all above board and hope that no one is out there trying to, to scam us, right? Yeah, definitely. I think you can't be too cautious when it comes to large sums, even small sums, really. No one wants to lose any money. So hopefully that has given you a helpful tip when you are transacting. Absolutely. All right. So Q&A, what's your first question, Emily? So there's been a lot of comments and we would literally be here for a couple of hours if we went through all the questions. So I'm going to go by basically the most popular ones um, by way of how many people have liked the question. So the most liked question comes from Troy Cowan and Troy asks, thoughts on investing in property directly versus investing in property-based ETFs? On the face of it, ETFs seem to be a lot more flexible. You can buy and sell them as you need with minimal transaction costs and smaller amounts. For example, you don't need 150k to get started and they're easier to manage. There's no complaining tenants, no maintenance. Um, seems to be lower risk overall too, given that you're spread over multiple investments. But I'm not sure how returns will compare over time. So it sounds like Troy's really debating, you know, do I put my my eggs in one basket effectively by buying a property or would yeah. I be better to look at into ETFs that are property-based? Now, yeah. John, I am going to handball this to you because my experience <laughs> with um, ETFs is quite limited and my knowledge around them. At first, put my hand up and say, I don't know very much. I know plenty about 
um, buying into bricks and mortar, <laughs> but yeah. um, ETFs, what are your thoughts? Yeah, look, I I have a high-level opinion on this. <laughs> some people like it, some people won't. That's cool. Um, I, I think if we're investing in ETFs or, or shares, or no matter what the product that we're investing in within that fund, I think that's very separate from individual property, right, which is basically the question. So I don't think we should be comparing the two to say which one should I do, right? If we're wanting to have exposure to property, um, my my thoughts would be we want to buy an individual stock as in an individual property, whether it be a unit or house and pick the location and get the yield and and do whatever we can to, to get that. Uh, if we're wanting to invest in shares, ETFs, etc., then go and do that, whether it's property that we're investing in or gold or, I don't know, some some particular industry, then that, that's totally up to you. So I think we've got to separate the two because my excitement for buying property years ago was the leveraging effect. So when we buy ETFs, we're probably not going to have too much leverage. We put $1,000 into an ETF and we own $1,000 worth, right? If we get 10% on that, that's $100. The leveraging of buying an individual stock in property is we we put 100000 into a $600,000 asset. It performs at 5%. That's thirty grand that you uh, that you increase your asset by. So that's my reason for investing in property. Not so much. Yeah, I like property and I like the results that it gives. But the leveraging is the is the key difference there. So does that make sense? That that's where I'm I'm coming from from for that question. Yeah, definitely. I think where my mind goes, if what if someone doesn't have the ability to have a deposit to actually buy their own individual property and then in that yeah. case uh, is potentially investing in ETFs that are property-based, a good interim solution potentially to, to build up. Yeah, I, I get that totally and, and that's the answer that is yes but does it need to be property? It mm. could be any ETF, couldn't it? So yeah. I, I, I wouldn't just focus on property in my ETFs. I'd be looking at right across the board, historically what's performed well and what, what performance or what growth do I expect to have from investing in that? Yeah. 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 Love it. All righty. Next question comes from Winsome Nori and Winsome asks, when do you get a depreciation schedule made? Is it when you first build a new house or 12 months later when you turn it into an investment property? Great question and it's one that actually has popped up a few times. When do I get one? Is there any benefit in me even getting one? Uh, and so we actually had a uh, tax depreciation specialist come in at one point, didn't we? You have to find the episode to reference. We did, yeah. Uh, Bradley Beer just came on just recently, didn't he, a few weeks ago. So check that uh, episode out. It's definitely within the last month or six weeks. Um, so I think generally speaking, if it's owner-occupied, we don't need a depreciation schedule because we can't claim the running expenses or the, the depreciating uh, asset that we've got. If it's an investment property, absolutely we can. So the answer to that in my mind would be, well, as soon as you turn it into an investment property, go and get yourself a depreciation schedule and have that ready for the next tax return that you're doing. Correct. Yeah, that was my thoughts as well, um, to be on the ball and try and maximise uh, what you can whilst it is an investment property. Yeah, and, and let's just reiterate that 
a lot of investors out there think their property is too old and dingy to get a depreciation schedule. Most of the depreciation uh, companies or quantity surveyors will actually say, look, we'll assess it for you. And if we don't think it's worthy based on the cost that you're paying us to do that, we, we won't do it at all, right? So it's, it's just worth asking the question. Most definitely. Otherwise, you're leaving money on the table potentially for lack of a, a better term. Now, moving on to one that uh, certainly I found very interesting from Cass Bishop. And Cass said, we are building and there is now a clause that says materials will possibly keep rising in price and those costs will be passed on. So, the contract we've signed isn't a final price. It's a bit scary to think you might sign a contract for the price of a house, get the loan, but halfway through, it could be X amount extra. Is there anything you can do with your loan to account for this? Or would you just have to apply for more money if it happened to you and didn't have the cash? Thanks, guys. Love your work. Now, the part that really, and I wrote back and I said, this is scary. John and I will cover this in the episode. It is scary to think that there is an unknown cost involved in building properties at the moment because of materials going up, because of the lack of trades and them charging through the roof to do work. John, you probably have more experience with off the plan purchasing or building new than I do. But is there any way we can get a fixed price nowadays with this skyrocketing of of material costs? Yeah, very good question, Cassie. I think, and we're actually going through this as we speak, uh, Mm -hmm. the, the fact that materials are going up basically by the day or the week. So, Ideally, we want to have things in our control in our life, don't we? Whether that's how much we spend, how much we earn, um, all the decision-making, the more things we have in our control, the better. The more confidence we have, the more sleep at night we'll have. So I think in this case, we always, I personally have always gone for a fixed price contract. So a lot of uh, custom home builders won't give you a fixed price, but they'll give you an indicative figure. And in the past, that's been okay to lend on because it shouldn't, give or take, it's going to be around that figure and you shouldn't have to loan more money. I wouldn't want to go into a process to build where you have to try and get more money from the banks. There's no certainty around that. So I I just wouldn't take that on, um, Mm -hmm. to be frank. So in, in short, we want a fixed price contract from the builder. Uh, the custom builder less likely to do that, but the uh, the wholesale builder will definitely give you a fixed price contract. Now, I know in the last 12 months or so that they have even said, well, we can't give you a fixed price because we know that uh, uh, prices are moving all the, uh, all the time with our materials. So, yeah, it is an interesting time where we really haven't seen this before. We haven't seen price rises in materials go... Uh, go north so quickly. So a solution for that, Emily, look, I would be just shopping around. And if you're halfway through the build, it's hard to turn back, but I would be shopping around before I commit to a contract and go with someone that's giving giving me a fixed price contract. Yeah. It's best to know what you're up for from the get-go if you can. Um, so good suggestion there for sure. Hopefully that helps. Cass, I know it's a tricky one and I'm sure there's many other people that listen to the podcast that are either considering, you know, building from scratch or in the process of building. So it's an interesting time to navigate. I think you can never have too much legal help on board as well, you know, returning to your conveyancer around the wording of contracts and and getting that amended to be uh, fair 
I think is yes. a really good good way to go. Yeah, and, and also just to add to that for Cassie and anyone else is talk to your broker about this because if you're halfway through a build and then all of a sudden, oh, and no, I've run out of money, I need to go and get more, a valuer comes out and says, well, this is a half finished product. I can't value this. I'm going to value it as I see it today. So it might be very tricky to go in and ask for, for more money. So that's where having our cash savings, our cash buffers uh, are really important that if we need an extra 10K, we might have to dip into our cash savings. So yeah, have a chat to the broker about just how difficult that may be to get extra funding. And, and a lot of, uh, I know a lot of people who have gone and built, they'll They'll get the house built, but it won't include landscaping or fencing mm. or driveway. Uh, they'll have to come out of that, that. Those funds will have to come out of their own pocket for that. Now, that's not ideal because, A, we need to understand how much it's going to cost us at the end, and that could be in 12 months' time. And, and B, we can't lend on that money, especially if it's an investment property. We might want to lend that money instead of paying for it out of our pocket. Yeah, most definitely. So we're going to take a quick break and I have got plenty more questions to reel off that we can discuss. So we'll be back in just a moment. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Now, John, back to it, some more questions and plenty that have got lots of thumbs ups, which means other people are saying, yes, please cover this question. Lani has asked, what are your thoughts on interest rates rising? John has previously given advice to plan for six interest rate rises of 0.25% and I do remember us covering that off, John. Would this still be good advice or would it be smart to plan for eight, 10 or potentially 12 rises? How quickly is the market predicting this will rise? Some experts saying 18 to 24 months and we will be at 7% interest rates. That's news to me. Wow. Did I really say that? We uh, did. We did an episode when you were <laughs> no. So not the second part. Um, so previously, John, we had covered off on point two five percent. We were talking yes. about six rate rises and what that looks like. And I do remember you giving some worked yes, examples of figures. I did. But Lani's yeah. now saying, like, does that advice still apply for 
considering the rate rise or should we yeah. now factor in like more rate rises beyond six? Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's a good question, Lani. I, I think we should always be looking for buffers in our calculations, shouldn't we? So vacancy rates, if it's an investment, if it's our own rock, we still should be looking at interest rate rises if we haven't fixed it. And even if we have fixed it, it's going to come to an end of that at some stage. So um, I, I think 15 to 2% as a buffer is is more than fine to forecast. Anything higher than that, it actually gets quite scary to uh, – you may actually change your mind to whether you buy or not, which like I think having um, like say 5% above, which brings it in at like maybe 7 or 8%, I, that's not going to happen in my mind in the next two years, three years. So uh, – we go back to 1990, 18% for anyone that can remember that and or if anyone was born then. Um, <laughs> I think people didn't have to sell their house uh, in, in, in mass numbers. It was, it was something where people adjusted to that right now, 18%. If you type that in today, that's like it's going to uh, scare the life out of you. So, yeah, we need to be realistic in what's going to happen in the next two years. When we say experts have forecasted it, experts are experts, they don't know. Um, they've had experience and generally speaking, if you look at where interest rates have come from, where it's going, then it's going to head north by how much. No one really knows the answer to that. But yeah, forecast 2% in your own life, that's what I'd be saying. What about you? Yeah, I agree with that. I also think the whole fear mongering around these rate rises if people don't take the time to educate themselves or look at their own numbers. I have harped on about recently and people who follow me on socials probably sick of hearing this, but I've been very adamant that shelter is fundamental and it is the last thing that people will let go of when push comes to shove. They will let go of their gym membership. They will let go of buying good quality meat. You know, there's things that they will let go of in order to have the money to pay their mortgage or their rent before they decide we're really going to have to sell. And I think um, the question around interest rates also alludes to the market, you know, changing in terms of the property market. And I just don't see how a flurry of stock is going to come on board when people will always prioritise shelter. That's fundamentally what it comes back to. There was a newspaper the other day that did have the front cover as – you know, this family that was in distress because of this 0.25% increase. And I did wonder, you know, what else could be let go before you let go of your mortgage or or were you already too heavily leveraged? And that, you know, that will create an impact for those people. But I think for the majority, particularly with the way the banks assess your interest rates as a starting point, uh, we're not going to see a flurry of houses come to the market in distress. Yeah, no, absolutely. I like that. You've uh, your highest priorities in your life you, is going to be the the biggest things you're going to hang on to, and the last thing to let go of. So, yeah, that's uh, that's a, a really good point. Um, and you're right; the banks assess it at, at two, three, four percent above uh, what you what your what they're lending it at. So that's um, that's something to take into account as well. So, mm. 
Good one. Wonderful. So another really loved question. It's got some love hearts actually and some likes. So that says a lot uh, from Lindsay Whitehead. Lindsay asks, thoughts on building a granny flat as an investment property with your owner occupied home to take the advantage of not having to borrow more money to be buying another block of land and other borrowing costs. So basically saying like, is it effective to, to do that? Now, I think a lot of this comes around to the structure of that granny flat being considered like, for example, probably likened to someone having a studio Airbnb on their block of land that is their PPR and how that works from an income perspective, how that's assessed uh, is sort of a more of a long-term uh, criteria to be thinking about. But as for saving money on buying another block of land and other borrowing costs... What do you think, John? I'm kind of, I'm for this. If, if you can make it work, why not? Yeah, I think when you're building a, let's look at the, uh, the granny flat first of all. If you've got your property that has suitability for a granny flat out the back, it's, it's met the requirements, uh, distance from the existing dwelling, distance from the fence, you've still got enough room to build that one bed or two bed granny flat think um, it's interesting and we deal with it a lot as to whether we're going to pour 80 to 100 grand into doing that now or are we going to put 80 to 100 grand into something else that's a separate asset. Now, the thing I always say to people is you can put that granny flat on whenever you want because you already own that land. Whereas you can't go and if you if you hold off on buying something else for two or three years because you've gone and put a granny flat on, uh, you've missed maybe that two or three years of market growth in that other area. So that's the thing we need to maybe look at first of all. Um, but the the attractive part of granny flats, number one is vacancy rates are so low around the country. And number two, the the yield and the cash flow that it gives you in your life and, and maybe looking at how important uh, cash flow is in your life. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say, if it's sort of instantaneous, isn't it? If you have a granny flat on the back to the outlay of 80 to 100K to then have potentially 300 a week maybe or even more depends how well you deck it out if you're doing Airbnb or if you're doing a long-term rental and having uh, someone occupy that property. That could Mm. be a good solution for you if you are struggling with cash flow. Uh, But as you said, it does prevent you from doing something you know, now when that can be built at any time. Yeah. And the other part of that is if you are building a a granny flat on your owner-occupied space, there's a little bit of a grey area with CGT all of a sudden, isn't there, when capital gains tax, when, you, when you're renting out essentially a portion of, of, your, uh, of your principal place of residence in, in essence. So chat to your accountant before you do that as well. Okay. Uh, next question comes from Lauren Channon and Lauren asks, how do we work out all the extra costs associated with buying a new home, for example, legal, title, stamps, etc.? So I think Lauren is referring to new purchases, but I think more generally we can cover off on what it, what you need to account for when buying a property, regardless of new or existing, because it does vary state to state. Obviously, stamp duty is the most common one of variance. Yes. There are plenty of stamp duty calculators online, but I would strongly suggest that you don't just use the ones that are bank provided. Sometimes uh, when you type in stamp duty, whatever, it comes up as... Even I think iSelect has one as well for some random reason, but uh, I would go to the relevant state website to to calculate your duty, number one. 
And then conveyancing and legal fees do tend to vary. I find here in Melbourne for a purchase, they are around $1,200 to review the contract and execute it. I don't know. What do you find up where, where you are? Yeah, so I think anywhere between about 1000 to $2,000 is what we'd budget for. Maybe just cap it at two and you should be okay. Yeah. Um, so factor that in. Title insurance is an option if you want to take it out. I personally haven't taken title insurance out, but mm. uh, again, cost of doing business if you feel comfortable doing that. Um, your stamp duty you mentioned, you Victorians have charged the most, I think, around the country in terms of stamp duty. So um, just factor in what that is. And you've got some – if it's an investment property, then you'll need uh, landlord's insurance, won't you? But regardless, you'll need building insurance, whether it's an owner rock or an investment property. So factor that in. And banks will want to usually see a minimum – building insured amount as well. So they'll, they'll usually let you know what that might be. Yes. Um, and then you've got property management fees if you're a, if it's an investment, haven't you? So and set up a property management too because they have the letting fee, the advertising, you know, the photos, that yep. sort of stuff to get it up and running in the first instance. And then there's usually uh, bank setup fees that a broker or your bank can speak to you more about, but there can be like a one-off basically admin fee for really that's what it is. And it can be anywhere from 100 to $300 just to set up your mortgage effectively. Uh, yeah. So there are quite a few things to factor in and building and pest inspections, you know, they, they can add up too. So you yep. need your deposit, you need your stamps, you need insurance if you are a landlord, potentially title insurance regardless of landlord or not, um, conveyancing fees, potentially a buyer's advocate fee, and then any accounting fees that might be associated with advice for how you are purchasing. Yes. A lot of things involved in, in this just beyond, oh, I've saved my deposit and now I go. So it really is ideal to have a cost analysis of what it's going to actually take to get you into a property beyond just your deposit. Yeah, totally. Okay, another question, and it, it is from Lani who asked one earlier, but it has got a lot of likes, so I'm going to take it on board. Okay. <laughs> Lani asks, how to avoid slash not give a direct number when an agent asks you, is this within your price range? What are you willing to spend sort of question? And this is one that uh, pops up all the time because I think a lot of buyers are nervous to give a figure that they're willing to spend. And I think the fear is it'll be used against them in negotiations, which is fair enough. But I must say, ultimately, the property is worth what it's worth. It doesn't mean because you have 800000 that a property that's worth seven fifty is, you know, now worth 800000 just because you have that amount of money. An agent's not going to, yeah. you know, use that against you. No, and I think I'm happy to say what I'm going to spend or what I intend to spend because we're comfortable that we know what we're going to pay for something like you've mentioned. So really it comes back to research, doesn't it, and knowledge of that local area or the area that you're buying in to make sure that uh, apples for apples you, you are going to spend what you think it's worth, not what you've got to, to lend or to, to, to use. Yeah, so I wouldn't avoid the question. I wouldn't feel like you need to keep it a secret what you're planning on spending. Uh, I wouldn't go out there waving a pre-approval around to say I've got you know exactly this amount of money. But I would say, look, I'm you know if your budget's six fifty, I'd just say I'm looking in the early six hundreds. We might stretch a bit more if it was something really good. But yeah, early to mid six hundreds is where I'm sitting. 
that yeah. sort of thing would be advisable um, without if you don't feel comfortable giving the exact figure away. But please don't feel like it'll be used against you. A property is worth what it's worth, not the um, exact dollar figure that you hold. Yep. Nah. Good, good advice there or good commentary, I should say. <laughs> uh, okay, so I've got one I might hit yeah. you with, Emily. Now, I'm actually going to combine two questions together if I can. Sure. So Stephen Longley says, I purchased a property just before it boomed again. If you made three years in wages from the purchase, would you sell or rent out if the property is not an A-class asset? Um, and before you answer that, there was a question about also buying in a mining town from Megan saying, e.g. the Pilbara, Pilbara region, I should say, and are the high yields worth the volatility of the market? So maybe combining those two together in our response. Sure. So the one about uh, making, was it three times a year wage in yeah, a short period of time? Wages. So what he's saying is if I'm on 100000 a year, he's basically made 300 k of profit right. and- or gain. What's really interesting to note is we have this very general rule of thumb that property values have historically doubled every seven to 10 years. But as we have certainly touched on before in previous episodes, is that doubling can actually happen within a small window of that period of time. And it's actually realizing and maximizing when that has occurred and knowing when to sell out. Because whilst it still might, might grow in value bit by bit, it may have actually reached the peak of how quickly it's going to grow and it might be an opportunistic time to sell that property on, particularly if it's not A-class. I think that was mentioned that it wasn't, you know, an amazing asset. If it's a good time to sell and there's evidence to suggest that there is a lack of supply of that particular type of property and agents can give you detailed information on buyers who have missed out on properties recently that are similar, then personally I would consider selling that property. Mm. And, and it's probably for me the first time that I've really actually considered the answer to this um, because generally you'd say, well, it's a good asset, the, the location performs for us on a regular basis. Uh, but in this case, we've had extreme growth in the last couple of years, like 20, 30, 40, sometimes 50% in the last two or three years. So we've, we've got to consider that that price that we can sell it for now might actually be 2024 prices on a normal growth chart. Yeah. So if, we, if we're not in an A-class area, uh, first of all, we're going to establish what that is. In your own mind, you might think it's not, but look at the historical growth over the last 10 years. And if it hasn't done anything for the last seven or eight and it's just boomed in the last two, there's a good argument to, to sell out now and go and put your money into a better area. Um, and that's probably the similar response to the Pilbara. Like if, if I had a property in the Pilbara and it's just performed like this in the last two years, I'd be getting the hell out of there. Right, I probably personally wouldn't go in there to begin with because single industry or or major industry focus there is is probably too much of a risk for me or too speculative. Uh, so it's the highs and lows, and if you if you can handle the highs and lows of investing, then that's okay. But yeah, personally, not for me. So hope that helps both of those questions. Most definitely. Well, we have gotten through quite a few of the questions. But it also depends how long we take answering them, doesn't it, each time I look at the questions like, yeah, we'll get through those, but we'd like to have a bit of a chat and unpack them. So 
What we yeah. will do for those that have been unanswered is we will reference this post. And if you're not part of the My Millennial Money Facebook group, you definitely should be. There's nearly 40,000 members on there and it is an Ooh. awesome community of people who are just there to help each other out. And people are so keen to put their scenarios forward and have feedback. But we will reference this post for another Q&A episode in the near future. So if your question wasn't answered today, don't worry. The answer will be coming for you. We will reference this post and circle back. Absolutely. And if you like some of my friends and you're just not on Facebook because you're too cool sort of thing, <laughs> just hit hit up Emily direct and uh, <laughs> send yeah. her a question. <laughs> okay, sure. Just hit me up directly. No worries. I will take your questions. <laughs> yeah, nah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, I've enjoyed that. I like a bit of diversity. It is. It's good. Yeah. So hopefully you've got something from this today. Thanks for your support as always. As mentioned at the start, if you feel like we're worthy of a review, then fire away. If not, then just continue tuning in and tell your friends about it. Of course. Thanks so much, John. Great to chat chat with you on some questions and we'll be back again next week. Okay, bye. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education. That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps. I've created the Solvair Online Academy, open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space. And if you're a first home buyer, I had the course just for you. Everything from pre-approval all the way through into your settlement and everything in between. How to place an offer, how to bid at auction, what to even look for at an open home and what questions to ask the agents. It's all covered in my online course. Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.